today I have with me Donna Ayn Davis. I'm really, really happy that um, she has made the time to speak to us. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. And um, I always get my people to introduce themselves since you know yourself way better than I do. So if you could just introduce yourself to our listeners. Okay. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, my name is Donna Ayn Davis, and I am a professor of anthropology and urban studies at the City University of New York. I'm also the director for the Center for the Study of Women in Society. And I am the author of the book, Reproductive Injustice, Racism, Pregnancy, and Premature Birth. And I'm also a doula. That is a lot. Uh, honestly, the women that I have interviewed on, on my um, podcast, so, so, so many of them do so much really important work. So mm. I'm, I'm very honored to have you. Um, Thank you. A friend introduced me to you, and I looked you up, of course, as we do these days, and I immediately ordered and read your book. It's amazing. Um, I love it because it's both an academic book, but it's also a very physical book. It's, it's, mm. it's, it's full of stories, people's stories. And you don't shy away from being personal yourself. <laughs> it was it was quite quite something. And of course, most of us that work in maternity care, we know about the racial disparity in maternity outcomes in the US. And mm -hmm. unfortunately, many of us actually live that reality. Um, mm -hmm. But this book really shed light on it for me living in the on the outside of that reality. It really shed a lot of light on it um, for me. So I wonder if you would talk to us about writing about this reality as an academic mm -hmm. and living it as a black woman. Oh, okay. Um, so as an academic, um, my work is always rooted in praxis or pra as a pracademic. So I, I wrote the book thinking that it would be important and hoping that it would be important for people who are working in the birth justice and reproductive justice movement. Um, it was a complicated book to write. Um, I think when person when a person collects um, birth narratives or life histories, you do you feel a tremendous sense of responsibility about the way in which you present people's stories. And so I constantly struggle and have throughout much of my academic life with how much of a person's story to tell, what's the best way to tell that story. Um, and as a Black feminist, um, one of the ways that I'm able to honor stories is to actually tell them as fully as I can. Uh, and it feels really important to be able to not necessarily interpret people's words, but to share people's words. And that's what I did in this book, and that's what I did in my previous book. Um, I really tried to give the full sense of who these Black women were and their experiences with their medical encounters while they were pregnant um, 
in labor, birthing, and postpartum. Um, as a as a black woman, uh, I too have had medical encounters that are shrouded in racism, and and am really struck by the way that the interpretations of different of, of adverse birth outcomes among black women and other people of color and birthing people rarely explores the way in which the institution of medicine is in the United States and in other places, a project that was built on racism, specifically obstetrics and gynecology. And so it is, I think it was important for me to share the parts of my story that made the most sense in relationship to thinking about pregnancy and, and what, and, and my, um, experiences with medical professionals uh, and what were the nodes where I thought racism was inflected in those experiences. Because this is really a book about how Black women understand the meaning of racism. It's not dependent on just the statistical data that shows disparity, but rather what racism feels like. That's a, that's a tall order. And I, I have to congratulate you. You did it in, you did it very well in this book in particular. Um, and one, one of the phrases in the book that really jumped out at me was racism and in, in the afterlife of slavery. Mm. It's just so powerful that phrase, because it really speaks to the universality of racism by that. I mean, how we are we have been molded by racism even if we want to deny it mm -hmm. um, as a white person i know that i have been molded although i fight against it and my whole life has been you know uh, towards that i know that i, I am living within it um, and and that phrase doesn't allow us to say oh well i witnessed a birth where a black woman was treated so well or I, I witnessed a birth where a white woman was treated so badly and somehow that's like, oh, so racism it doesn't exist because this little um, kind of after comment in maternity, maternity care history, you know, says that, well, no, that, that this little event didn't prove that it didn't happen. Mm -hmm. So I, I take that phrase also to mean that as birth is taking place, Within a racist system and also patriarchal, I may add, that's a whole other conversation. But but that means that every aspect of a black woman's birthing experience is affected by that racism. So can you can you unfold that a little bit more for us, listeners? Sure. So the the, the term the afterlife of slavery is one that um, is described and defined by Sadia Hartman, who is a professor um, of, I believe, literature at Columbia University. She's also one of the more recent um, MacArthur winners. And um, essentially, that term 
came to be both a, a framework for me to understand why some of the experiences that Black women described to me contemporarily resonated so closely to the ways in which Black women were treated during the time of enslavement in the U.S., as well as during the sort of rise and the 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 um, the spread of racial science, and essentially, it the the term suggests that in the moment after enslavement, that everything thereafter is in its afterlife, and that in the afterlife of enslavement, people's experiences are still um, very much linked to that time during enslavement, that there are resonances from the time of enslavement in contemporary society, and that there are memories and feelings and sensibilities that exist in the time after slavery. Um, but it also became a method for me. And in that regard, I would use archival material to help explain and to help illustrate what a contemporary experience or expression uh, of a medical encounter was like. And so basically what I did from a methodological perspective was there's a woman's story and I try to contextualize it with an a piece of archival, with an archival source that allowed me to map a kind of interpretation of a woman's contemporary story to the past. So I'm sort of pulling the past into the present to try to explain that the present has a history. Um, and an example that's not in my book, but one that um, I am aware of through the work that I'm doing with um, Professor Karen Scott or Dr. Karen Scott, who is a, an OBGYN and an epidemiologist who has a really profound project out of, that emanates out of University of California, San Francisco, but is a sort of national project, um, is based on a series of focus groups that she conducted with women in California, birthing people in California. And one of the respondents talked about what she felt like after she had given birth at a hospital. And she made a comment that referenced plantations. Um, she said, you know, after I've given, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, after I gave birth, I felt like they um, put me back out in the fields. And that is, I think, 
a really interesting and profound example of how people pull the past and their knowledge of the past as a way to explain their contemporary experiences. Because during enslavement, a person would have a may have a baby and might still be expected to go and produce capital for their for their master, their enslaver. And so I thought that that was a really good example of how the afterlife of slavery um, is continued continually manifest um, in people's memories and in people's interpretations of their experiences. Yeah, that's so interesting, and in and in the storytelling of it, that she actually used that language. Mm-hmm. A couple of things come up. Um, one is that uh, one of the things that popped up uh, quite a few times in the book, and 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 the contrast also popped up was was the idea of of black women um, being labeled in various ways um, mm. within the racist maternity maternity care system, um, exotic creatures that don't feel much pain, but that are also at the same time dangerous for their babies um, because of you know various whatever life choices or poverty or whatever it might be, um, mm-hmm. but also superhuman and, and, and more than anything, you know, exotic and, and animal so they can give birth super easily. And then on the other hand, I, what jumped out at me that you'd hadn't written down, but I've seen over and over again, white women playing out the fantasy of the weaker sex and, you know, the frailty of, giving birth and how hard it is and 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 the coddling that goes on with them Mm -hmm. and i find it very interesting in my own practice that it that it is the majority of the clients that i've served that are looking for um birth experiences outside of that obsessive oppressive system are people of color so i think that it you know it goes both ways like if you push people down and enough, I mean, this is, you know, I'm Pollyanna here, but I think if you push people down enough, they're going to pop back up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other thing uh, that came to mind when you were talking about that is the history. So the history of slavery was long and hard, but there's a history before then that I'm also finding people accessing and that history before then is the history of of um of maternity care that is completely woman-centered that is communal that is um that is honoring birth and and circular as opposed to longitudinal and i'm interested in talking to you about that Mm -hmm. um you wrote about it talk to us a little bit about it um, I don't know the degree to which I talked a lot about the time before enslavement, because for black women in the United States, I mean, the U.S. is an, is an example of, of racial capitalism and the um, the economy of of enslavement. Um is in fact what the country was built on. 
Exactly. No, I'm 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 sorry. I, I didn't phrase that right. What I meant was, as women, um, mm -hmm. women's history before before enslavement, before the movement of slaves even to the U.S. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I I believe that women have a mm, the same type of uh, of historical story in their blood that talks about how their mm, sisters and and women caretakers um, gathered together to to care around birth and I think that uh, like you know my people's story is from Northern Europe I don't know how they did it back then but I do have something in my blood that tells me how I they did it mm -hmm. and I believe that an African American has who you know whose family lived through enslavement and the, the journey and then living through that in the U.S. I think a woman has that somewhere in her and mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering, I guess my question isn't speaking about that, but more about you did speak about how um, community organizations are growing in the U.S. that are that are yes. run by black women and, and supporting black women. Yes, and that is true. <laughs> um, I would say that. Um, so uh, there is a there is a, a formidable history of a sort of set of practices of community that involves community around um, biological and social reproduction. And I think that not all, but many of the community-based dual organizations that I'm aware of and the people who are doing, um, you know, sort of radical care work or, or midwifery, are drawing on the histories of the kind of traditional practices of people um, both within the context of the United States and birthing and outside of it. Um, for example, there's an organization in New York that is focused on sort of resurrecting the, the quote, ancient traditional practices of, of birthing and um, and providing care to birthing people. And I think that cross-culturally, we can see the, or we can learn about the ways that people created community, offered caregiving, offered care, particularly around you know, in the postpartum period um, and have a kind of perspective that birthing is natural um, and that the body often, although not always, knows what to do and that in our sped up contemporary society, this inability for of of many, but not all, but many hospitals to let the body do what the body does is a really frustrating set of experiences, but also counterintuitive to some of these more ancient ancient traditions. Now, I also want to say that it is not that I am completely opposed to some of the medical interventions. 
um, because I recognize that they are sometimes necessary. But I'm also thinking about the degree to which there seemed to have been a decrease. There was a really interesting article that talked about how OBGYNs who were hospital-based were, and this is a sort of international conversation that they were having, um, hospital-based OBGYNs were pointing out that in the time of COVID, there were more babies that were being born at term, and there were fewer interventions. And in various places in the United States, there was a sort of rethinking of the possible the role that hospitals played because they didn't want people coming to the hospital to give birth because of COVID. And all of that suggests to me that the sort of hypermedicalization of pregnancy, labor, and birthing um, does undermine a kind of um, a set of traditions where um, where where human reproduction really can occur without tr- tremendous degree of interventions, and that in those instances where people do not require intervention because there's no little to no risk, that um, this reintegration of traditional practices can be and is a very good thing because then it takes the process of birthing and then it recenters both the, the birthing person and, and the community in which that person lives. I agree with you completely, 100%, but I also know that uh, I'm seeing I'm seeing some people that are moving so far away from the medical system um, for two reasons, either because they're scared of COVID. Um, it's playing out a little differently uh, in different countries. And, and here in Canada, people are scared to go to the hospitals because mm-hmm. um, doulas are being restricted and they're realizing that COVID uh, is in the hospitals. And so it worries me to see people that are already wanting to leave the hospital care system jumping into a place where there is no care. So mm-hmm. um, no care or care that is that is that is substandard. So so um, you know it's yeah. not like midwives are not are not going. Some midwives are not going to be as um, you know stereo stereotyped as as a doctor like we we can't divide people up like that so what what worries me is people jumping right from the you know the the huge system of oppression into somewhere where they're not having any care at all so it it leads me to the the next little note that i made about that woman you told the story of a woman who had suffered a a, um, a procedure by a position that she hadn't consented to um, and I, when I used to work as a doula, I would always caution my clients to say, to tell the mid, the midwife or the physician when they were doing an internal late in pregnancy, not to strip the med- membranes because that's the yeah. procedure that happened. And um, so, people that don't have a doula at their side, you know, um, it, it's so hard to to stop people, you know, physicians mm-hmm. and midwives doing things without consent. But the doula world itself can be really difficult. Um, it can be exclusive. It can be expensive. It can be judgmental. And 
so that where I'm going is do do you think that black women need to have black birth companions? Um I I can't say what what people need. I think people I can't. I what I think is that the option to have a doula is one that should be available to everyone. I do think that the the black and they're not the only doulas that I interview, but I and I continue to interview people. But I do think that not all, but some black doulas walk, have their feet firmly planted in two domains. One domain is that of providing the you know like the the labor, if you will, of reproduction, the process of helping people birth, the you know all of the ro- kind of romantic things that we think about. <laughs> the massages and the positioning and the breathing. Um, at the same time, their other foot is is firmly planted in a kind in a, a form of activism that is often centered around negotiating on behalf of other black women. Um, there is one doula who I who is who so who shows up in my book but is also in a, a major magazine article. Her name is um, Efe. And Efe talked about how as a Black doula serving Black birthing people, she spent far more time negotiating around expressions of racism in hospital settings with Black people than she did with white birthing people. And so that kind of um, dissent, uh, disparity about what the kind of treatment that people get, I think, can be addressed by a person who has a certain degree of consciousness and and a, and a willingness. But I don't think that only has to be a black person taking care of another black person. All I can say is that among the black doulas that I interviewed, that negotiation of of what I now call obstetric racism certainly uh, takes up far more time than one experiences when providing care and support to white families. But it also puts people on a path of dealing with systemic racism and some of the other sort of low-resourced issues that people of color face. For example, in the time of COVID, there's a there's a, a doula in in the, in New York who talked about how her clients, some of her clients, were unable to utilize their federally funded um, food subsidies to purchase diapers, and therefore had to go outside and take public transportation to get diapers 
at stores that were fairly far away because the, the communities in which they lived were sort of supermarket deserts. In other words, you know, they, they didn't have supermarkets that had the quote benefit of, of being able to purchase um, quantities of diapers so that the price would be lower. And in that regard, she ends up, along with two other women, one of whom is a doula and the other of whom is a midwife, raising about $1,500 to $2,000 a week since May so that they could purchase three primary items, um, baby wipes, diapers, and, uh, and uh, formula to deliver to about 650 families during the time of COVID. And so that led them on this path to becoming engaged in policy around transportation and to become engaged around engaged in policy around, um, around benefits, uh, you know, federal or state benefits. So that's a, but that's a long way of trying to get at this issue of the kinds of sensitivity that I think doulas, some doulas can have, and anybody can have those sensitivities. But I think the whole point of community-based doulas is that you work in the community in which you live because you know that community. Does that mean everybody has to be of the same race or ethnicity? I don't think so. But again, the most of the people that I've interviewed who are black serve a predominantly black population, but that's not the only group that they serve. But when they serve, there are many of them when they serve black birthing people, the, the support is much more around advocacy, negotiation, and translation, as opposed to the other kinds of birth care labor that doulas are traditionally known for. Yeah, so uh, what I was saying was I, I understand that really well. I, I used to run a, a volunteer doula organization here in Montreal, and I would train the doulas who would volunteer. And I, I could always tell who was going to last in the organization because um, the ones that went in really for the really fun stuff, which is, you know, being with someone when she's in labor and massaging and being there for the baby being born and, and, you know, that stuff um, wouldn't want to do all the work of, um, of, you know, well, negotiating the, the kind of abuse that happens when someone goes into a hospital in a socialized medicine, um, a place where socialized <laughs> medicine is the norm and they don't have insurance. So mm -hmm. that kind of thing. And then just get it like someone wanting to get a taxi that doesn't have any money and trying to negotiate um, free you know, transit, all the kind of stuff that you know that you've spoken to the doula organizations in the U.S. that uh, that we were doing here, and so much of it was exactly that, just uh, being being there for people f for whatever they needed, and not necessarily back rubbing. Um, right. Not not to put back rubbing down, of course, but not at all. Know. Yeah, I, I mean, not at all to put that down, but I've been I've been thinking about and writing about 
the labor of reproduction and the role of doulas. And, you know, I think when, I think that there is a bit of a misconception that doulas' primary responsibilities begin and end with the birthing. And there's so much more, so many other avenues. There's so much more that goes beyond birthing. You know, there's engagement with policy, there's, you know, things happening at a very local level that then lead to a state level that sometimes lead to a national level um, in terms of their engagement. And a lot of it is really rooted in a justice framework. That It's really complicated to provide support to a person living in a community where, you know, access to diapers is a complicated Absolutely. Access to diapers and not only access to, like you mentioned, three things, diapers, um, baby wipes and formula. And I mean, I know that disparity really well in my practice because I had a private doula practice where I was serving people that would, you know, never, ever use disposable diapers or baby wipes or formula because they had enough money to afford cloth diapers and they had a washing machine in their place and they, you know, cloth little wipey things and, and would never use formula because they could hire a lactation consultant. So, and then the other people, you know, that I was working with in my volunteer organization who like, you can't use cloth diapers if you don't have a washing machine in Montreal, you're not going to hang diapers out in 40 below weather, just not going to happen. So um, those kinds of, it's really material um, yeah. differences. Yeah, absolutely. So what would your advice be as um, as a mother, as an, I think as an elder, you're around my age, I think? I think so. I'm really? 60. So a, very, very good, yes. We can, we can consider ourselves elders. Yeah. Um, so what would your advice be to a young woman who is newly pregnant in terms of, you know, um, negotiating care and who should she look for? Who should she avoid? What would be your, your advice? Um, I think it's really important for people to do some reconnaissance work to figure out who they want to have be part of their team. Um, if that's a doula and a midwife and a birth assistant, a midwife's assistant and back up with a doctor, you know, all of those things that they can um, sort of interview people for that and then spend a lot and then definitely spend time on a couple of things. Spend time learning about the body learning about the, the physiological process of, of being pregnant and birthing. Create community with other people who are also pregnant. Um, and not only have a birthing plan, but also have a labor plan. One of the things that I say when I work with people, when I support people is, you may not actually have the birth that you want. They may really work hard to have you, you know, have an epidural and do Pitocin and want to do an induction. Like they may really overpower you with that. 
and it might in fact be necessary. However, maybe we can think about the kind of labor you want. So I think about birth plans and labor plans because the point is, is that ostensibly you're gonna wanna remember one of the more positive things that have happened during the process and and to be reminded that if this child is wanted, that you're gonna love them regardless of how they, hopefully, regardless of how they came to you. And so being prepared on multiple fronts, I think is really important. Um, and to not be discouraged. You know, I think sometimes people get discouraged by the problems that can sometimes be associated with, for example, breastfeeding. Um, but there's some people that really can't breastfeed. And there's some people that actually don't want to breastfeed, maybe because of work or what have you. And we just need to, we need to respect people where they are, but actually give them all of the information and not necessarily an idealized version. Like not every person needs to breastfeed. I think breastfeeding is best, but some people literally can't. I was one of those people. You know, I wanted to breastfeed, but I had to go back to work within two, within a month or two. Yeah. And I couldn't, you know, and back in those days, it was a manual pump. And I just, for, for a number of reasons, I wasn't able to make it operate well. <laughs> but I don't need to be shamed for that, <laughs> you know, nor do I need to be shamed for the fact that I had a, a, a C-section and didn't have a vaginal birth. Um. I do think that there is a bit of a misconception that all doulas and midwives want people to not have any, you know, any interventions and that everything needs to be natural. And I just think that that is not true. I think the whole point is to give people enough information and that they can gather enough information so that they can make the best choices for them in consultation with whoever their team is. So that's my thing. Absolutely. Yeah. And and I think the goal, if if you're working as a doula or a midwife, the goal is to accompany someone through a birth experience that they will then look back on and say, I did it. Yeah. yeah. Regardless of what that it was. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, so um, finally, I, I, do, I wanted to ask you another big piece of advice. Um, so I, one of the agreements that I have around my podcast is I use someone's music and I, I, I gave him, um, I gave him an agreement that I would send money monthly to different organizations, uh, supporting black women and their babies and birthing. So, Ooh. so bigger picture, what, what would you say we can do to help narrow the racial disparity in outcomes and to provide every black woman with access to safe and sacred birth? Oh my goodness. Well, I, you know, it's we need a to rather big question. I know. <laughs> I mean, we need to dismantle racism. We need to dismantle anti-black racism. I mean, right. And we can do that in a myriad of ways that involves participating in justice movements, which can begin with the kind of local work that we do in supporting local organizations, 
groups and people that see the linkages between food justice and reproductive justice under which birth justice is a part, you know, under which birth justice falls. Um, and, and while I think it's important to have the state support, we don't, I think, want the state, at least not in the United States, we don't necessarily want the state crafting the, the, the meaning of certain kinds of, of care work, um, and, and certifying everyone. I mean, Oh, I agree with you a hundred percent because here in Canada, that's one of the things that we're struggling with is that midwifery became legal 20 years ago, 30 years ago, and now it's completely under the thumb of the government. So we've got people being refused home births. Right. So we have to, we have to walk a fine line uh, between the assertion of, of state crafting, right? State governance and keeping things at a community level. And it might be fine to have the government offer certification for doulas, but that doesn't mean that the government is the only entity that gets to say which doulas are certified and that only a certification can come from the state. Certification, you know, comes a lot from community-based organizations. So, um at any rate, that was a that was a little bit off topic, but not. Um, my point there was to that we we need to support groups that are that are making connections and doing anti anti doing work against racism. Um, that one thing. That, one thing you. Oh, sorry. No, no, no. Go ahead. <laughs> you just intrigued me because you brought up a thing that I hadn't thought about. The um, the 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 link between um, between uh, reproductive justice and food uh, justice. Yeah. Can you tell well, us that, a little bit? Well, what I'm what I'm talking about there is, um, you know, reproductive justice is a kind of justice. It's rooted in rights, but it's it's about making sure that people are supported regardless of whether they give birth or not, but, and also ensuring that they have access to all of the resources that they need to live a healthy kind of life. And human reproduction doesn't happen without social reproduction. And in order for society to reproduce, we have to eat and we need to be eating food that's good and healthy and People who live in food deserts are unable to do that. And the, the link between food justice and reproductive justice is that in order to reproduce, you need access to food. I mean, it's, to me, it seems really simple. Um, and the thing that I really have loved about interviewing the, the doulas and the reproductive justice you know, these radical care birth workers that I've been talking to since 2011 is that many of them are active in multiple movements. They are doulas who are active in a reproductive justice movement and housing movement or reproductive justice and food justice. So they, they see and make the connections. 
And I think it's incredible. It's incredible because it's all about a justice approach. And a justice approach is not necessarily about, you know, fixing a, a broken system. It's about trying to build new systems. It's yeah. about trying to build new ways and alternatives and integrating maybe even multiple strategies. Um, so... I think that's the one thing that I find absolutely fascinating about living in these times that I think mm -hmm. there's been a huge turnaround quite recently about um, kind of crying about the broken system and from crying about the broken system to forget about the broken system. Let's just create a new one. Yeah. I mean, that's what transformative justice is. Transformative work is about not is not about reformation <laughs> it's about yeah. transforming yeah so i always ask my interviewees to give me one word at the end of the interview so just one word for our listeners to put out there for today oh my goodness hope <laughs> oh wonderful thank you so much I love these words. Everyone comes up with a different one and they're all so powerful. <laughs> Good. Thank you so much. This Thank has been you. very enlightening and, and fun. And actually, I have to say, honestly, I think we can be friends. After COVID, let's get together. <laughs> that would be great. I hope you enjoyed listening to my conversation with Donna Ayn Davis. Please remember her word, hope. For next week, I have a full show on the placenta, that wonderful organ that many of us know nothing about. I've invited guests to educate us about the placenta and others who talk about lotus book, birth, encapsulation. Oh, and what is placentophagy? For you sound connoisseurs out there, I'm sorry if you've noticed a change in my audio quality. Blame it on the virus. Restrictions are preventing me from recording with my sound expert. So I'm making do as a doula do. Listen up next week, spread the love, and keep birthing. Whether it's babies, ideas, love, plants, we need you. <laughs>